Hello, I'm with uh, Dr. Frances Labar. Hi, Franny. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. So we're going to talk about your work as a psychoanalyst and also somebody who's very interested in movement. Mm -hmm. And it must have been quite a journey to get there. Well, it was, yes, yeah. I would say about a, a 40-year journey. Yeah. It may be longer since I've been dancing since I was three. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it started with movement. It did, yes. And I, in fact, if I go back that far, it started with a teacher who was very creative in, in using movement with children to help them understand themselves. So I would say she was probably the beginning. Ah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but maybe that's too much to go into right now. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point... Yeah. Well, so so yes, I was a dancer. I left. I was well. I had a lot of interests. One was uh, biology, and the other dance. And um, who would have thought that they went together? But I did find a way. Um, and so when I left college, I wanted to dance, but also I was teaching nursery school and teaching children and adults dance. And gradually that evolved into having a greater interest in. Um, children's psychology and adult psychology and how that relates to the body and body movement in particular. And I was fortunate to come out of college in the 70s and, and uh, when um, there was a huge amount of exploration of nonverbal behavior going on and a great deal of um, research going on, which sadly ended pretty much in the 80s, except that it was sort of kept going by infant research. Um, but just backing up, So there I was, dancing and exploring mind-body uh, therapies and mind-body theories in the 70s when you could, you know, trip over dancers. There were so many dancers and companies in New York City, and I was among, among them. Um, so let me see. From there, though, I got, as I said, more and more interested in the children that I was working with and in adults that I was working with as a movement therapist and decided that I would study as a psychologist and eventually also as a psychoanalyst. So mm -hmm. you had to go to psychology and uh, psychoanalysis. Yes. I mean, for me, that was uh, the, what I wanted to do because I was very curious about what, what, I guess you would say, what underlies mm -hmm. the phenomena. And I had started out, as you said, I was a teacher, so I studied early um, the way in which children's body styles reflected their cognitive styles and how they approached learning. And that was the first paper that I did um, at Bank Street College and then went on to study psychology. Yeah. Uh -huh. So as you then went on to study psychology and to uh, study psychoanalysis and become a psychoanalyst, did you for a moment maybe transition away from this emphasis on movement mm -hmm. and only later rediscover? Yes, there was a period of time when, certainly in my training period, when I was, you know, trying to learn what my teachers had to teach me. And, and uh, at that time, most psychoanalysts were still very involved primarily with what is conveyed in words. Uh, and, you know, looking at word content, word associations, um, Uh, fantasy, imagery, that kind of thing. And not that they weren't also at times interested in um, body phenomena, uh, the symbolism of the body, and so on. But that was always kind of an aside. The main focus was what, was what were people saying and what did it mean? 
and what, what did their dreams mean and what did their fantasies mean and understanding the transference. Um, and as I said, it was always a part of what psychoanalysts thought about, but never the central feature of it. So I learned what they had to offer. And, and there was also a strictness when I began training, which has gone away, but is, there are still residues of it, which restricted really how the analyst could behave in the room. Mm-hmm. And there's still there is still that to some extent, for good reasons, um, perhaps. And I probably shouldn't go into this because it's too long a story. But um, but that affected me as well because having been a movement therapist, of course, I was moving with people and using touch, and and it was a very different approach. Um, so now, so how did you? Rediscover movement as a as a psychoanalyst. Right. Well, I f- what I found was that the thing that psychoanalysts don't see necessarily is how much movement occurs when people speak. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that was because in the, in the history of psychoanalysis, people were on the couch, but even when people are on the couch, there's a great deal of movement that occurs in their bodies and between the body of the analyst and the patient because words are movement, speech is movement, there's a rhythm, there's a tonality, there are changes in intensity, there are shapings of the body that occur and that have an interactive impact that's really highly significant. So the first step was actually not so much to reinvent or bring movement, but to find that it was already there and simply notice it. And it was your ability to notice it where other psychoanalysts maybe wouldn't have. Right, right. Um, Not in the same way. As I said, they would notice things as an aside, like Felix Deutsch early on looked at positions that patients took. Um, but again, it was seen in the lens of drive theory. So if the patient um, put his hands over his chest, it was seen as um, a defense against the wish to nurse, mm-hmm. things like that. So you, you, there were very sort of prescribed ways of seeing movement that occurred in, in line with Freudian theory or in line with Sylvanian theory or in line with object relations theory. Right. Whereas what you were noticing movement in line was being conscious about movement and not necessarily based on pre-existing psychoanalytic theories. Right. Yeah. Right. Actually, what I did was I took a wide... I decided to study it for actually as part of my doctoral work to study a very wide range of, of, of nonverbal research that was not based in any psychoanalytic theory and look at what that had to say about body movement in general and whether any of that was applicable. Of course, it's all applicable. Um, I also found that within within nonverbal research, there were also disputes similarly along the lines of nature-nurture, mind-body. Well, maybe more primarily nature-nurture. That is what's innate in the body and what is learned. And there's big controversies about that in the literature. But again, when you look as if as when you look at psych, what psychoanalytic theories have to say about the body and body movement meaning, and when you look at what nonverbal research has to say about it, what you find is that they talk about very different things. So 
and very, they use they find different pieces of action to look at. Yeah. Right. So that it becomes um, a question of putting it together as a whole. It's all complementary, not contradictory, as they might have wished. It's not a question of well, looking at the same movement. It means two different things. We have a controversy then, but right, it's, it's really like you actually observe two different movements, two different aspects of movement. Right. I think I got off the track of your your initial question, but I think well, it had to we're, do with we're, it's it's getting there. My mm-hmm. the uh, the question was in a way, how did you come back to movement? Uh, you know, having for a moment set it aside as you were a right. pure psychoanalyst. Right. So what I found in the literature was a lot about the movement of conversation. There was a lot about what what happens when people talk and there's rapport versus argument. When there's um, uh, oh, well, that's one really important one. Um, and then I looked at other kinds of theories that delineated um, temperament and what what's innate in the body. And what then I looked for what that might mean to a person in, in treatment with me. So um, let me see. So when you talk about temperament, for instance, as uh, similar to say character structures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now, character was understood, for example, by Reich as being imposed on a person. That the, the various restrictions you might see in a person were imposed by upbringing. Mm-hmm. The research that I looked at suggested that it was a lot of it was innate, but there was a nature nurture, obviously combination of things that might further restrict or or reinforce an early preference or limitation. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain maybe with an example uh, versus an environment that would help a child expand. But it wasn't that the restriction was was imposed entirely. It was it was the person would use what was innately um, readily available, both to so reinforce the tendency, innate tendency. Yeah, so the person would use that innate preference, in a sense, to engage the world as well as to defend from assault. Um, so that was a big eye opener. Mm-hmm. Because you can't expect then always to change that so easily. Yeah. Not that anybody ever thought it was easy, but but you know what I mean. It gives you a different sense of what's really possible, and a different sense of respect for the person's defensive structures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, um, we're in the middle of movement mm-hmm. uh, as part of the defensive structure. Right. So not necessarily the same way as Reich viewed it, mm-hmm. but still in that mode, right. as opposed to movement as part of the natural flow of things that happens in a way regardless of a defensive structure. Right. Well, so there's different layers. So there's the movement that happens just because it has to happen, because it is part of, by the way, thinking and re- reaching words. It's a whole other conversation about what does it take to be able to think and speak mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of movements that are required for that yeah then there's the movement that expresses who I am and who I am with you right now mm-hmm. and um, and it isn't just defensive but it's I have a repertoire I have I have my own repertoire of movements that I use 
and um, and you have your repertoire, and how do right. we come and share a repertoire, and what does that shared repertoire mean, and what what's its extent, and can we expand it, or are we contracting it? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So so then there is all this richness that exists in mm-hmm. the middle of the talk therapy of the conversation mm-hmm. and um, part of what happens is because of your background in movement part of your interest in reading about it in different ways then you have you develop the capacity to be more aware of it so is there a moment you know in a way in your career as a psychoanalyst where there was an aha of using this or is this something that happened progressively and at some point you noticed how you were um, using more of that awareness of movement as part of your therapy I would say both I mean I think that I that I sort of embarked on a, a very I decided to embark on a study of how, to, how did this go together mm. and in that I studied with Judith Kestenberg and with Margaret Rustin in London at the Tavistock I studied with Judith Gestenberg is the Kestenberg movement profile and she studied with uh, the Laban people now mm-hmm. I don't know for those who are not familiar with it it's a system of analysis of body movement to such a fine degree that it can be recorded and repeated so it's like a musical score for the body yeah and the, the great advantage of that is that you simply can talk about what is being done it doesn't it doesn't have a theory about what is being done it although one could say that it's a phenomenological theory because it breaks down movement in particular ways and I suppose one could do it in a variety of ways and therein lies movement theory yeah and questions of movement there but in any case for me it was and I think for anybody it's it's a highly detailed um, way to specify movement to such a degree that another person could repeat it yeah uh, she used, she was a Freudian and she worked with children and she used this she devised this system of an analyzing a child's movement and then analyzing a parent's movement and used it to help them understand the areas of clash mm. and areas of merger of their movements yeah. to help them both with differentiation if it was too merged and um, and help them attune to one another if it was too different and she found that she she was one of the very early researchers who found that it was how significant it was that a parent could physically attune to a child that mm. that made a huge difference in in the child's feel, feeling of well-being and trust yeah okay so that was one piece of study that i did mm-hmm. and then i worked with margaret rustin now in england they have a system called infant res- infant observation which I think now uh, is so well regarded that every psychoanalyst in training goes through at least a year of doing infant observation. And what that means is the analyst goes into an, a newborn's home and for 45 minutes a week just visits and watches and observes the parent and the baby, then goes out and writes and tries to record what, what, for what they saw and mm-hmm. experienced and then they go to a seminar to discuss it. Now, so I did that for two years here in the States and used to send my recordings to Margaret in London and we would have this dialogue. 
Now, what I found, though, is if I if I used the the work that I was doing with Kestenberg as a way to help, it augmented my perception of what was happening. Mm-hmm. That is, I could really begin to see more of what was in the interactions when I when I thought about oh posture or oh um, movement qualities or you know what is the relevant piece of information here and I want to just uh, interject something in what you said uh, yeah. that year of observation right is that if I understand correctly it's just observation during that time you're not giving any advice to parents so there is uh, the development of the ability to observe and restrain from taking action. Yes. Uh, so uh, the the skill mm-hmm. that you develop, which is you know, is is really that that capacity to just observe mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 develop that ability to observe instead of just immediately acting from it. Yes, and it's and that's an immense skill and. It, and um, and I think I would really recommend it to anybody to do this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be with a child, but with even an older person, maybe in a nursing home, someone who wouldn't mind and would enjoy a visit, mm-hmm. to just try watching and being with the person or the baby and then going away and writing what you saw. Right. Now, I evolved this into what I call writing the kinetic text. Mm-hmm. And I made a huge amount of discovery for myself about that. So, and what that means is when I'm with a patient, and particularly if I get into areas where I'm uncertain about what's going on, I go away and I write the kinetic text. That is, I write out everything I can pull up about how did the person walk into the room, how did they sit, how did I sit, how did I how did I move in my chair, how did I move. What was my postural change? What were my gestures like? What was the patient's gesture? What were they like? Was there a shift in the session? From mm, but I literally write it out as though I were writing a, a script. Yeah. You know, or or better, a script plus a um, a choreographic yeah. record. Yeah. Which which obviously means that um, you have the capacity to observe, notice, remember those things. Yes. Which to the untrained eye would just be things that flow away without being very much noticed. Exactly. What I discovered both with myself, because of what I do is I write this over maybe over several days. I don't I do one round with it and then I go back and I read through it and I add details that come to me as I'm reading rereading it. And then so that was interesting in mm-hmm. itself that I could dredge up more information as I went along and yeah. it was in my mind yeah. and then when I worked with supervisees who are not trained to do this and asked them to write a kinetic text they, they first wrote one that was rather you know superficial mm-hmm. the patient walked in sat down you know. so then I'd say well how did they walk in and I'd really sort of push them to get to more and more detail uh, and what they and I discovered was how great the detail was that they did have in their minds that they weren't using mm-hmm. that it was there yeah in their image of the person all that detail but they weren't able to access it nor nor were they and and therefore they couldn't they couldn't use it to help understand right. what was going on between them and the patient yeah so that that i found it and to be that was an immense aha moment but it took you know many yes. years of work 
to get to that point. Yes, to, to really uh, discover that that is really at an implicit level. There's all this observation that's going on. Right. But actually that's used, not, that's not used. And um, that as you pay attention to it, right. it helps the person, the, the therapist, actually notice that they noticed much more than they thought they had. Yes, yeah, that they could really get at things that maybe they would have an intuition somewhere about, but really not, mm, it wasn't there much. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that this is the source of what we call intuition. Yeah. But we're not used to understanding what that what that's based on. Right, so it's mm-hmm. unpacking that little implicit process into something that's more intelligible. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so w- we're talking about this in the context mm-hmm. of um, bringing the interest in movement together with psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. and it came from that very conscious decision for you to study uh, people who had been paying attention to that mm-hmm. and apply this and and uh, use very. A careful, deliberate observation in your work. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, in what way then um, did you notice something changing mm-hmm. in the kind of interaction you would have with patients? Mm-hmm. Is it something that was only for your own interpretation, your own sense of the patients, or did something mm-hmm. start to evolve in the way you would interact with patients? Um, at first, I think it was just my own, for my own thinking. Um, but that said, one of the things I thought was that when you understand something n- differently, you automatically behave differently. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's a, there, it's, there's a seamlessness that goes between seeing something and incorporating it in how you move and behave and think and then something else occurring in the patient. Yeah. So so it's always difficult to pinpoint that. People say to me, well, how do you use it? And I say, how do I not use it? It's not possible not to have an effect once you, once you know something. Okay, but you're asking about maybe more specific things. And yeah, there, and there so that's are a very some. important point. It yeah. is an important point. I mean, even the even the even the uh, task of searching for something with a patient creates a whole style of body interaction that is very distinctive and different. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that said, what else do I do? I also use this information and try to engage people with it. You know, I'll talk about sometimes how they tend to move or how they might be afraid of moving. Um, for example, I wrote about a patient when in the paper on kinetic transference and countertransference. I wrote about how I talked with her about her difficulty of sitting up and expanding wide in her chest and feeling kind of like she could be open and take on the world. And I, as I was telling her about this, I sort of de- demonstrated it and could trust with her 
that she somewhere in her she would mirror she would mirror that. We yeah. not, we're now talking about mirror neurons in yes. neuroscience. This was before we had heard of near, mirror neurons in humans, and um, and indeed there would be a little shadow movement that she would do to kind of mirror me, um, and that 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 over time got to be bigger. Mm-hmm. Of course, this was in the context of analyzing her relationship with her mother and the way in which she caved in and held back and felt felt frightened and intimidated by people. Um, so they were, anyway. Um, so this was a case of um, you pointing out to her mm-hmm. the quality of her movement, maybe the caving in and the, t- the, the tightening, and then at the same time demonstrating what opening yes. up could be. Yes. And as you did, you noticed that there was a tendency of her to follow you. Yes, yes. I mean, there's a whole interesting sequence I, that I found it fascinating that I do report in that paper. Because one of the things I'm very careful about is I don't imitate patients necessarily or without a lot of thinking because I don't want to make them self-conscious about their movements, mm-hmm. especially since the context in which the context in which they understand what they're doing with me is not that. They don't yeah. come to me as a body therapist. They come to me as a psychoanalyst. So when I'm when I'm moving in that direction, I do it in a very gingerly way. Um, with her, I think the the demonstration of that movement might have started out with demonstrating what her mother might have been like, mm. and her difficulty of being like her mother. Mm-hmm. So her mother was big and out there and tough and you know and intense, and she was small and retreated and and one of the things she discovered was she didn't want to be like her mother because to her being out there meant being big and tough and intense and too much so you I'm just saying too much in a way in a sense to say oh is this what she was like yeah and I did it and and saw when I was doing it it was already not quite as big and intense and horrible because I'm very tiny like she is and can't be quite as intense, I'm sure, as her mother was, but but it was enough that she could then follow me a little bit. And she mm-hmm. could sort of say, yes, that is what she's like. Mm. Get into it a little more. It was safer to be a little bit more like her mother and then differentiate what was like her mother from what could be just enjoying bigness and being as right. out there as you right. can be and not, not intimidating other people. So, so in a way, um, as you're using this as an example, mm. it's not so much about movement you know, in abstract as if movement could exist in abstract, yeah. but it's also related to the meaning right. that this could have to the bigness, the bigness related to the mother, the mother related to the interpersonal relationship. Right. So all of this, you know, being in a shortcut in the movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Yes, and, and otherwise one would have to talk about it in relationship to feelings and attitudes, which is also related, you know, the attitude of feeling sure of oneself and wh- what movement goes with that. But if you don't get into the movement and you have people who are very restricted in movement, uh, I think it's hard for them yeah. to get it. I think it's useful to be able to do movements and talk about movements and free associate with movement as much as we free associate with words. Mm-hmm. So, but I began in a very kind of careful way. I would say I still yeah. do that. Mm. Yeah. 
So that was a beautiful example. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you say you're still careful. So in a way, what's your sense of what you feel comfortable doing, what you feel not comfortable doing? What's the? Uh well, it varies with patient to, from patient to patient. You know, some some first of all, now that I have written a lot on body, some of them come in knowing that I work with bodies and think about bodies and so they are and they themselves are probably a little bit inclined in that direction already or mm-hmm. more, or very inclined in that direction with those people I can do more be very much more explicit about it um, uh, with others there you know I might invite but I don't get a, a response so there I'm using it much more implicitly I, mm-hmm. I might do things and I might even I, c- I both find myself doing things that, that are the reciprocal or the opposite of, of what the patient is doing. It just kind of happens as a matter of course, and then I'm watching a response happen um, that I can then talk about with them. Right. Did you see what happened between us, for example? So just in doing that, even um, in there, there's already an interaction that exists and is different from the very traditional psychoanalysis where you would mm-hmm. just try to p- claim objectivity and neutrality and hiding yeah. uh, because there is that interaction going on. Right. And let me just interject that I think most psychoanalysts, certainly the ones that I know best in the relational camp, and, and I would say in many others, are um, recovered from that position, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and are experimental and experimenting with what they can do and say and how, how to be with people. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you don't view uh, your using movement as something that's outside the mainstream of contemporary psychoanalysis? No, I don't think so. And I don't think that my colleagues would regard me in that way, though they, they, um, they would say I privilege movement more than many others. And it's just because I study it so mm-hmm. much um, and know more, let's say, than, than many other people would know. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's part of the, you know, just in a sense, a context where people are more experimental and paying attention to a wider context of the relation between what happens between the, the therapist and the uh, client. Yes. Uh, and you have a particular vantage point mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. movement. Right, right. Yes, exactly. And I guess I have a, a language and, a, and a, a way of seeing that isn't, um, well, it's not part of the training. Mm-hmm. I'd love it to be part of the training. I think it would be immensely useful for people to learn the basics of, of certain kinds of movement theory and um, nonverbal research, which is why I wrote my book. Yes. Um, but it's hard to learn in a book mm-hmm. entirely. You can learn a lot, but you need you probably need uh, more hands-on and in-person learning. Yeah. Mm. So do you actually, is that something you teach people? Yes, it is. Um, I do, I train people just in supervision with me to use this idea of the kinetic text and I sort of teach them the basics of, I mean the concepts I think that are most valuable at the moment for for psychoanalysts to understand are how do we recognize temperament um, and the kind of um, basic fundamental movements that every person does. So 
I don't know if you want me to go into this right yes, now. Yes, no, that would be interesting. Sure. So, so temperament is something that would be goes into that question of, say, mm-hmm. the character structure, or uh, and yeah. the uh, the other part the, the, the is uh, in a way the vocabulary of movement right. unrelated to any question of defensive reactions. Or right. Just just you know dif- ways of defining how do people move. So so the temperamental characteristics um, which were defined by. Warren Lamb and Judith Kestenberg coming out of the Laban tradition. Mm-hmm. Warren Lamb developed something called action profiling, where he delineates the dimensions of, of space that, that individual bodies use most. And he, he also defined something called posture-gesture merger, which is um, there are different kinds of movements. There are gestural mov- uh, movements, which are kind of peripheral to the body, a hand movement or a head movement. But when it merges with a posture, that is to say, when the movement becomes part of spinal movement, that is, you, your whole body shapes in a particular way, that's called a posture-gesture merger. Mm. And those movements, he thought, were were very much at the core so of one's repertoire. I just uh, want to interject sure. something there. It was a very interesting experience. Mm. Uh, we happened to be talking uh, in front of each other, mm-hmm. and as you're talking about the posture-gesture movement, mm-hmm. you know, you had not only the, um, mo- the hand movement, but also the movement with your spine. Right. And so, um, in a way, when I hear the sentence posture gesture, it might take me a moment to really get what it is. Mm-hmm. But just following your movement mm-hmm. was an instant, uh, you know, getting it. You could get in, it, you know, right. In a very powerful way. Right. Right. So very much to your point about how difficult it is to uh, uh, to follow this without the in-person uh, presence. Yeah. yeah, right. It is um, tricky. Yeah. Um, maybe someday I'll make a DVD. You should. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so there are the three dimensions, when you think about it, it's obvious, are horizontal and vertical and sagittal forward. So it's side, side, and around, mm-hmm. um, flat, horizontal plane, and then vertical is up and down, and then sagittal is forward and backward. Yeah. And people tend to prefer one or two over three. In other words, they have... They lean to one or two of the dimensions more than having all three, although there are people who have three, but they're mm-hmm. rarer. Um, and then there, then there are aspects of how adaptable is the person. Can, can, they, can they move from one to the other easily um, or not easily and use different dimensions in different contexts as needed? Yeah. Um, he also talked about how the use of dimensions was related to action taking and thinking so that the horizontal plane which is this kind of wide moving flexible focus I'm looking around as I'm saying this and moving side to side and front and back um, is very useful for exploration Mm -hmm. looking, looking for and seeking and seeing what's what and then the vertical, which is a narrowing into the body, getting more in touch with your core, straightening up, is mm-hmm. about forming an intention. What do I want? What do yeah. I want to do? And then the sagittal is about doing the action, getting on it, being operational. 
So, and that just makes a certain amount of logical sense. But in some ways, when I first read it, I thought, oh, this is really too pat. But then, when you begin to actually look at people and think about them, and what, what aspects of action do they prefer and what are they really good at, um, it really just opens so much up about who they are and what their struggles in the world are and what their talents are. Mm. So that's one element yeah. that I work with a lot. Yeah, and so that's something that is, in a way, not necessarily is is a um, is a style. It's a question of style as opposed to a pathology. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, it's something that tells you, because of this style, how a person is going to interact with the world. Yes, and it's not it's not neurotic. It's it's kind of rock bedrock. Um, mm-hmm. Now it can get to be problematic because you engage in a culture that may demand something else of you or your parents evaluate your your talents and limitations in particular ways that become difficult mm? yeah so um anyway that so that happens um, but it but it is just part of who you are yes and it has to be understood and respected i think so that you can Work with it. If it's if it's denigrated or um, exploited, that becomes that's the that's the area where it becomes a, pro- a problem that, that I have to deal with. Right. So so what it is is um, it's not something um, that's um, a clue to um, something that you need to correct, but it's a clue to understanding how a person views the world and interacts with it, and mm-hmm. uh, a typology in a way of how people are going to react and engage the world in different ways. Yes, yes. And then the other piece of temperament comes from Judith Kestenberg's work, and she sort of noted, she started writing, um, nota- she'd invented a notation to look at infants' changes of tension level. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is muscle tension, mm-hmm. bi- binding the ten- the muscle and freeing the muscle, so that level of tightening and releasing, and that changes all all the time in our bodies, or it doesn't, and that's another, and that's one kind of tension style. Mm-hmm. Um, and she delineated these qualities of movement, and there are I think eight of them, and um, you know I could name bound free. Uh, Gradual change, or or abrupt change, or even tension, or flow fluctuating tension that changes all the time, and you really can see this in people, as well as see how well they can adapt their their basic. In people, uh, not just in infants. Not just in infants. This is something that stays with us lifelong, and it's there all the time. Um, uh, and the other thing, just think for a minute. I feel like I'm forgetting something. That's okay. Sure. That's okay. But so uh, part of what's happening there is um, mm-hmm. when you were saying earlier uh, that this, you know, about Laban is that it's a, it's a notation, it's not a theory. Mm-hmm. But certainly in the case of these tensions, there is an implicit theory there because instead of just calling it tension, um, recognizing the different kinds of tensions opens up a totally new field mm-hmm. that you don't have when you just... Uh, you know, consider that's just tension. Right. 
And I, and it's not. I'm not quite sure what you mean, actually. Um, well, I mean by that that there's um, 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 it's not you know it's not just oh by the way they're just different you know there are differences and but by paying attention to it noticing mm-hmm. the differences mm-hmm. um, in a way it opens up a new um, uh, it's also a theory. In the sense that it says that it's important, that it says it's worth paying attention to, and what happens is important. Yes, 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 yes. And what she did was notice that these 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 tension patterns were highly significant in how a parent experiences a baby and how a baby experiences a parent. So that right away, it becomes a part of how of how interaction occurs and how well a parent can adjust early on to the baby's tension patterns right really matters so so as you're talking about this in a way uh, it, what comes up for me is that your work mm. is very much also about observing mm-hmm. uh, the client the patient at this very deep level yeah you know that any therapist any psychoanalyst is of course observing mm-hmm. but um, there is a more complete sense of observing the complete person mm-hmm. by not just paying attention to the words mm-hmm. uh, but these very subtle movements mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so they're even in a way if you did nothing with it in terms of specific interventions just being in tune with these very subtle movements mm-hmm. would be recreating the attunement of the early attachment the uh, uh, you know the, the parents attunement with the, the child mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then also when it's difficult, when the attunement creates a difficulty, that's also important. For example, one of the people I've written about in my book is a woman who speaks very rapidly, and, mm-hmm. and so rapidly that, well, what happened was she also needed an in a rather close attunement from me or she would get highly anxious and this all occurred sort of unconsciously between us so I was attuning very closely because I knew that if I sort of stopped and got a breath she would go on out of her own anxiety so I would got to be very close to watching her movements as she spoke so much that I couldn't speak with her. It was very mm. difficult for me to find the rhythm I needed for my own speech patterns because yes. that's another thing. Your speech patterns are part of your your body rhythm patterns, not vice versa. And um, so I was stumbling for words and couldn't. So you were overwhelmed by her own totally, rhythm. Yeah. Totally. She was speaking fine and very cohe- well, fairly coherently in this rapid style, you know, sort of spurts and abrupt um, rhythms, and I was falling apart because yeah. my rhythms are very different. And um, but what we discovered was that there was a kind of meaning in this that, she, that that the speechless person became me, even though she felt herself to be speechless in a way and unable to find her own voice and her own um, sense of groundedness. And then we even ta- discovered that when she was between one or two and three, she had stopped speaking altogether in her family. Whoa. And that some of what had gone on in her family was kind of what I was experiencing with her, was that there were these rapid speaking people who paid no attention to her and just kind of went on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very interesting 
So the so yeah, it was it was carried into the the rhythm, yes. the the pattern, yes. And um, by immersing yourself with it, mm-hmm. uh, you were led to actually discover the impossibility of communication yes. with somebody who has this kind of a history, this kind right. of a pattern. Right, right, And it had to do. No, to go back to it, she did have an an innate tendency to. Um, Low fluctuating abrupt movement. That's mm-hmm. quick, quick change, abrupt. Um, as opposed to say quick change and kind of oozy. Yeah. It was quick change, abrupt, staccato. And um, but she exaggerated it when she was anxious. So it was it was never going to go away completely. But the exaggeration and the and the need for me to be that closely connected to her eased up with with her, you know reduction in anxiety as we got to know one another better mm-hmm. and then I could speak in my own rhythm and we could find ways of connecting that didn't require me to completely lose myself in her yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that that happens as a yeah. result of really paying attention right but th- but I guess just to say this was her temperamental characteristic and have it had it became her one could call it a strength in the sense of this is how she could hold on to herself and you know make sure that she wasn't going to get overwhelmed was by right. in a way becoming a bit overwhelming to me but at the same time cut off communication with others or cut off the possibility of others being able to meaningfully relate to her right right mm-hmm. So I think did I, co- I think I covered the temperamental characteristics. Very nicely, very okay, nicely. Good. So actually, I want to just uh, check. We're we're actually we're coming to the end. Okay. So um, wanted to just see if there's anything you would want to say as uh, some kind of a uh, conclusion to this. Um. Well, I guess I could say to people just notice more and look more and work with it and believe your eyes and <laughs> believe your um, experience and know that you know much more than you think you know about people if you write down descriptively what you see but also I would say you know there that, that, that cross fertilization between fields is is a very good idea and mm-hmm. part of why I enjoy doing this is I think that there's a lot we can learn from each other, as I certainly discovered in my studies of the nonverbal, rela- uh, the nonverbal uh, research field, as well as the various theories of psychoanalysis. Thanks, Rani. Okay. <laughs> this recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com